You're listening to episode one of Retail Therapy, a Rethink Retail exclusive podcast series where we examine a retailer brand facing a huge challenge and provide actionable steps to revive, revitalize, or rebrand them back from oblivion. And in this episode, we'll be taking a look at a retailer credited with creating the modern department store as we know it, as well as introducing the city of New York to both the Idaho potato and the tea bag. She's an iconic American department store that's now in dire straits. Yes, we are talking about Macy's. Checking in for today's session are this week's retail therapists, Steve Dennis and Neil Saunders. Steve Dennis is a strategy and innovation consultant, speaker, podcast host, and the best-selling author of Remarkable Retail, How to Win and Keep Customers in the Age of Disruption. Neil Saunders is the Managing Director of Global Data's Retail Division, where he works with clients to help them understand the retail, shopper, and market landscape and advises them on how to best develop, evolve, and implement business strategies. I couldn't think of two better guests suited for the role of retail therapist. Steve, Neil, thank you both for joining the show today. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be uh, here with Neil. And it's great to be here with Steve. Thank you. And it's certainly great to be here with the both of you. And now that we know a little bit about our retail therapist, Let's start this session off by first taking a look at our patient's history. One of the most iconic department stores in history, Macy's today employs nearly 90,000 people across the United States. But the story of this retail staple began back in 1858 when a man named Roland Husey Macy Sr. established a new store called R.H. Macy Dry Goods at 6th Avenue and 14th Street in New York City. But that was just the beginning of this story, and R.H., enlisting the help of his cousin Margaret, grew the brand throughout the 1800s, expanding westward and taking on more product categories such as jewelry, home furnishings, and even became the first retailer to introduce the idea of an in-store Santa Claus for the holiday season, which set the stage for future department store Santas everywhere. Around the turn of the century, the company was fully acquired by brothers Isidore and Nathan Strauss, who made one of the most important decisions in the store's history when they moved it uptown to 34th Street, which is still the site of the company's flagship location today. By the 1940s, Macy's was a cultural icon, cemented even further when it became the setting of the 1947 classic Miracle on 34th Street. By the 1970s, the miracle of Macy's began to lose its market share as more department stores entered the retail landscape. A number of acquisitions and rebranding efforts took place throughout the 1980s and into the new millennium. In 1994, Macy's merged with Federated Department Stores, Inc., which at the time was the largest retail conglomerate in the country. By 2006, Macy's merger with Federated had paid off, as more than 400 stores that were operated by the conglomerate were turned into Macy's locations and the retailer's national dominance grew. But like all retailers, Macy's wasn't immune to the forces of the market. In January 2015, Macy's announced it would close 14 stores across the U.S., and eight months later, the company announced it would close 35 to 40 underperforming stores by early 2016. 
By January of 2016, Macy's had laid off 4,800 employees, and as of October 2022, Macy's currently operates 446 department store locations, in addition to several backstage and market by Macy's locations, which we will dive into here in just a little bit. So Steve, Neil, we just heard a little bit about Macy's history. What would you say is the state of Macy's today? Well, I think in the case of Macy's or just department stores more broadly, it's been a pretty long decline, not to get into too much history, but if you think about department stores and malls in general, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, they had a really strong reason for being. There wasn't that much competition. There were places you could go to see a very wide assortment of different kinds of products and different kind of price points. But over time, various formats started to chip away at their, their dominance. First, I would argue, it was the rise and expansion of discount department stores. So, you know, um, Walmart and Target. Uh, then it started to be the category killers in the 80s and 90s, you know, that were picking off different parts of their business by focusing on uh, better prices, more convenient locations, more dominant assortment. And then it was really off price. I actually don't think, I think the stats are pretty clear that e-commerce has not been that big a factor in affecting department stores. But really starting in the late 90s, and I was at Sears at the time, all of the department stores, perhaps with the exception of Nordstrom and Neiman Marcus and Saxon on the high end, started to lose market share. And it's been a long, steady decline, really, for almost 25 years. And so what made those stores really powerful in the past now really is a, is a, a format that I think is you know, really struggling to find relevance, at least at the scale uh, that it needs to operate at for these to be continue to be large, successful businesses. I think really one of the problems with department stores is that they just stood still in the face of a changing market because everything that Steve has identified is absolutely accurate in terms of how the market changed, how competitive dynamics changed, how consumers changed. But one of the things that strikes me is how little most of the department store groups actually changed over that period. They really didn't evolve. They didn't rethink how they should reformulate their operations. They didn't look at things like new formats. They may have started to look at some of that now, but that's 20 or 30 years too late. They should have been thinking about that long, long since. And I think that that stagnation just led to fossilization. They have become the sort of dinosaurs of the retail world. And as Steve identifies, this isn't a kind of sudden extinction like the dinosaurs had. This is actually a very long and protracted death. And that's very interesting because along that pathway, there have been many opportunities when they could have done something or seized a new opportunity or looked to change. But actually, most of them over that period chose not to. And so I think the inertia on the behalf of American department stores is one of the key reasons that they have declined and they continue to decline today because they still don't seem to make many of the right moves in terms of adaptation. And I think that that's been really quite fatal um, for the department store uh, sort of group as a whole 
and for Macy's included within that. And of course, the long-term market share dynamics show that they've lost an enormous amount of share. I mean, there was a time when market, uh, the market share department stores was over 14% of all retail sales. I mean, that's absolutely extraordinary to think of in today's context, where they command a very, very small fraction of the market. It, it is really quite stunning that, uh, I mean, I, I was at Sears, I left Sears in 2002, and we were doing a ton of analysis as to what was going to happen to our, our business. And obviously, a lot's, lots happened to Sears over the years. But it was absolutely obvious 20 years ago that if you were in the department store business, you needed to achieve much more focus and differentiation if you had any chance of winning back the market share that all the department stores were starting to lose. And to Neil's point, you had to change your format strategy. The traffic trends were very, very clear. And it was one of the reasons, even though Sears had all sorts of problems that went, that went haywire after Eddie Lampert uh, did the Kmart merger, but we were working on off-the-mall formats and had various off-the-mall formats that we were testing more than 20 years ago because it was so obvious that that was where the market was moving. So to Neil's point, how you know Macy's, Penny's, others basically watched the last 20 years happen to them when you didn't have to be any sort of genius to, to realize that uh, you were going to be in a lot of trouble without taking aggressive action. And so now it's what's really scary to me, if I could just add one point sort of about the, the real estate dynamics, because I think a lot of it is protecting their real estate assets. You know, they have relatively inexpensive real estate on the mall. And so to do something different takes quite a lot of capital. And I know many of these companies get all worked up about essentially competing with themselves. Uh, and that sort of defending the status quo mentality can be, as to Neil's point, can be really fatal ultimately. And it you know, definitely was the case at Sears and I think is, is becoming the case at some of these other chains. Yeah, all excellent points. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm curious about your thoughts on the federated department store acquisition. So that happened in the early 90s. And you know, I want to know if you think that helped or hindered Macy's because, you know, on the one hand, they have now kind of gotten rid of some of their competitors by, you know, consolidating them into themselves with, you know, Marshall Fields and uh, Filene's. Um, but at the same time, now they have now they have all of these new physical storefronts. So how do you think that impacted them in the long term? I mean, I know there was a lot of controversy over the years as Macy's picked up and, and eliminated some of these, these nameplates. I think you could make an argument on the one hand that had they kept the more localized um, management and the more localized branding, that that might have given them an extra point of differentiation uh, in the market. But I think the main factor is the sector was shrinking. And so if you can't figure out how to grow the top line, then consolidating makes, makes a lot of sense. What's pretty stunning, though, is even though Macy's has consolidated all these chains, and even though Pennies and Sears and others have closed hundreds and hundreds of stores, they still haven't picked up any market share, which I think fundamentally says how irrelevant as a format their, 
their store really, really is in total. I mean, they, I think Neil used the term inertia. There's a lot of inertia mm -hmm. there and they started from a high point. But if you think about 20 or 30 years of consolidation and store closings of their direct competitors, many of whom are in the same malls and really haven't, they haven't grown the top line very much, uh, if at all, you know, that's pretty stunning. And I think just to, to add to that point, um, the merger with Federated or the acquisition really by Federated was a good thing from the point of view as it developed scale and they could have done something more significant with it. But I think one of the big downsides is just the confusion it created. I mean, even the, the process of merger and acquisition itself, if you look back at the history of, of Macy's, it's enormously confusing. I mean, it was acquired by Federated and then Federated bought some stores from Broadway and then it acquired May department stores and then it got rid of Lord and Taylor out of the mix. I mean, the whole thing is just this big mishmash of corporate deal making. And I think one of the consequences of that, which actually still plagues Macy's today, is there is just an enormous amount of confusion about what Macy's is, mm -hmm. what it stands for, what the different uh, malls, the different sorts of formats it has within malls are supposed to do. I think in some localities, there are still some people who hark back to the old names, as Steve said, those old banners, which were very popular, and because it was extremely controversial to do away with them at the time. And I think, you know, Macy's in a way, we don't see it today because when we go into a mall, we see that Macy's nameplate. And credit to the group for evolving that through time. But it has been the creation of a sort of patchwork of different stores and different companies different cultures, different operations, different localities. And I think some of that still plagues the company today. I think there's a lot of confused thinking within Macy's. It doesn't seem to be a sort of a company that is born out of a single culture, if you like. I mean, if you look at Amazon, obviously, it's a much younger company, but there's a very distinct Amazon culture. If you look at Kroger, I mean, Kroger was born through acquisitions, but there is generally a kind of Kroger culture to all of the different banners that it operates. I think that Macy's just suffers from the fact that it is basically a patchwork of companies. And there is a lot of confused thinking within Macy's. And I do think that some of that comes through the history um, of how Macy's has been formed over time. Yeah, those are all excellent points. And, you know, it's, it, it kind of seems like Macy's just doesn't really know who it is or what it is or even what its own brand is, which is obviously very problematic, especially when trying to, you know, market yourself to an entire new generations of shoppers that likely haven't been in your stores before, or maybe if they have, it was when they were, you know, children with their parents in the mid-2000s. And, you know, Steve, if, if I were an alien who came down to earth and asked you to describe what the Macy's brand even is? Like, how would you describe it to me? Um, average products for average people, but slightly more upscale. That would be, you know, which is really the problem. You know, I talk about in my book, the collapse of the middle. And I think it's just become, you know, to some of the points I made earlier, we've seen this bifurcation in retail where things have tended to skew either towards the value side of the equation or towards the more um, upscale differentiated side of the equation. And it's just gotten harder and harder 
to kind of stake out this ground in in the middle, and that has a lot to do with, um, you know, customers can get access to products that are more commodity like pretty easily. And if you want to save money and you want convenience, you've got lots of choices. And if you want to go more upscale, you've got lots of choices. But this this middle ground is just very hard to stake out. So I think even if Macy's were to uh, tighten their positioning and have more clarity in their marketing, they're still stuck with these huge stores, which are just kind of a mishmash of everything. And so, you know, that's like the albatross, I think. You know, I joke around with my podcast partner about anchor stores. You know, it used to be if you were the, you know, the anchor of the mall, right? But now it's like an anchor around, you know, around your neck because you're just stuck with these vast stores and this very broad positioning and and you know it's just very hard to win back market share when you've got you've got that sort of um fundamental value proposition. Yeah, I really like the the anchor analogy and you know maybe Macy's should think about using that uh as their new logo. But that being said, you know, they are trying new things. They've launched quite a few different initiatives over the last few years. There's Backstage, which is kind of their response to the growing off-price category. And then there is Market by Macy's, which is their off-mall format. So let's get into that a little bit. And let's start off with kind of covering Market by Macy's, since that's been in the news quite recently. They've been making plans to expand and roll out more of these off-mall, these smaller format stores. So, Neil, I'll have you answer this question first. Do you think showing up to the strip mall is the way to go here for Macy's? Well, well the first thing I'd say about Market by Macy's and, and generally Macy's is I have a laundry list that's as long as your arm of various <laughs> initiatives Macy's have been carrying out since 2006. And this is one of the problems. Macy's do try a lot of things. Now, that's to their credit. You should try a lot of things. But the list of what they try and what they say they're going to do is very long. The list of successes out of those things is extremely short. And that makes me extremely skeptical about most of the things Macy's comes out with strategically. And that includes Market by Macy's. And one of the interesting things is Market by Macy's, this idea of a smaller format or an off-type mall location, it actually isn't new. I mean, they were talking about this in 2009. They opened up a a store in Gilbert in Arizona, which is, I live in Scottsdale in Arizona, so I've been to that store. And it, it isn't as small as a market by Macy's, but it's much smaller than a traditional Macy's, and it's on a single level. It's supposed to be a kind of off-mall, open-air type format. Um, and they only went on to open about three of those. Now, market by Macy's, they've been developing for a long time now, and they've only got five of those. So it's sensible, and there's some merit in it, but it's probably 30 years too late. They're very slow in terms of executing it. And the biggest thing, to Steve's point earlier, is they are still very average in those stores. There is nothing special about those stores. And to your point, uh, Gabriella, they don't know what they are and who they're supposed to be serving or how they're supposed to be different from anything else that's out there. And I think that's really, really damaging for a smaller store format because at least with a big store, a big department store, you can put a lot of stuff in there and you can be sort of guaranteed that some of it is going to interest some people. 
a smaller story is actually much more difficult to execute because you have to make a decision as to what you leave out and what you put in. And if you're making those decisions, you have to know who you are serving and who your competitor is and how you're differentiating from, from the rest of the market in that location. I honestly don't think from having visited some of those market by Macy's stores, they do understand those things because they come across to me as a smaller, slightly neater, a little bit more aspirational, perhaps a bit of bit yeah. better merchandise version of average. There's nothing that's that special about them. So I'm very skeptical. Yeah, well, I, I think Neil said it very well. I, I do think that one of the things that all department stores probably need to do because of the challenges of the size, and I don't want to make it all about size and real estate, but the size of the box um, and being tied to malls is they need to rethink their total market strategy. So I'm in Dallas. And so what Macy's probably needs in Dallas is three real powerful hub stores and then like 15 smaller stores that are based on convenience, that operate more as kind of omni-channel service stores. And then the three stores that they keep have to be really spectacular. They have to be much more tightly edited. Uh, and so it's, it's the combination of your digital and e-commerce with a really good portfolio strategy that that could win. But the Macy's problem, to Neil's point, is the market by Macy's is not clear who they're really for and what's differentiated about it. And then the rest of the stores are too large, too unfocused. And, you know, I'm sure we'll eventually get to some of their executional issues because that, that's Neil's forte. But, you know, even if they executed much better, strategically, they're not well positioned. So I think, you know, Macy's needs to articulate what their overall positioning is. And then they need to create this portfolio of digital and physical assets that is designed to grow their business in a given city by like 40 or 50%. Because if they can't start growing much more significantly, this is a business that's never going to earn a positive ROI. It's going to continue shrinking. So I applaud that they're taking some initiatives. But to Neil's point, yeah, it's just a lot of stuff. Most of it doesn't work very well. And it's not clear what it's really... I mean, other than saying, well, it's good to get off the mall because malls are challenging. Like, that's not a big strategic insight. You know, everybody's been saying that for 25 mm -hmm. years. Yeah. And to, to, to build on Steve's point a bit, I think the, the idea of localization is very, very important because you do need those power stores and you do need a range of different formats and different markets. But they almost need to look at the stores on a mall-by-mall -mall basis and say, okay, do we keep this? Do we not? And if we do keep it, what do we want it to be? Because... I'll give you two examples close to me. There's two uh, Macy's stores in two malls in Arizona, uh, one in Scottsdale Fashion Square, which is a very upscale mall. It's got the likes of Prada, Louis Vuitton. It's got a massive luxury wing. They have another in Arrowhead Mall, which is a more family-based mall. And you need to treat those two stores very differently. The uh, Scottsdale Fashion Square one should be much more upscale. The customer has enormous spending power in that mall. They are there for luxury purchases very often. The Arrowhead one should be much more family focused, much more kids, much more home, you know, maybe a bit more downscale in terms of some of the price points. But at the moment, when you go into both those stores, they look exactly the same. They feel exactly the same, even though they're serving enormously different types of customers. The thing that's common about both those malls is they're very successful, very well-trafficked malls. 
So there's no problem with the malls. The problem is that bases in each mall is not positioned correctly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you need to have that kind of local point of view. Um, and interestingly, again, that's on, that's on my laundry list. Macy's had this localization strategy. It was called My Macy's. They started it in 2008. We're now 2022. It still isn't yeah. working. So, I mean, it, it, it speaks volumes to the fact that they haven't executed all of these things operationally to make the stores in the markets work. Yeah. And then I know they, so they introduced backstage both in their anchor stores, and then they also did an off-mall backstage as well. So to me, it does seem a little bit confusing with all of these different stores, different strategies, experiences, and, you know, with Market by Macy's and then the off-mall backstage, to me at least, it kind of feels like they should marry those things together or merge those things together so that they can compete with the likes of, you know, the Nordstrom Racks or the TJ Maxx's or the Marshalls, because to me, those seem to be really what their main competitors, at least for an off-mall strategy, would even be. Well, I think, I don't think there's inherently anything wrong with with having an off-price strategy. I don't know why they didn't start 15, you know, it's like, I think we're both like a broken record on like, these are all pretty good ideas 20 years ago. It's just unfortunate that, you know, you're so far behind, but I don't think there's anything wrong with, with an off-price strategy inherently. Uh, It's just, you know, they're now fighting for a lot of business and once again, trying to steal business away from other Mm -hmm. players and what's really their, their edge. So it feels a little bit like, well, we just have all this space and what, what else can we, can we fill it with? I mean, I think if Market by Macy's is supposed to go after a younger, more affluent customer, then you design your format for that. If uh, if um, Backstage is supposed to be for the more value-oriented shopper, you know, then you then you you focus that. So I think it would be dangerous to try to blend them because it's different customers, mm-hmm. different purchase occasions. Uh, but it all gets back to you know what is it, what is it ultimately they're trying to do, and have more clarity about that, and then drive your your testing strategies and your format strategies against that. And if they're not working, then you know bail on it and move on. Uh, but they do seem to hang on to things well past their expiration date, or if they are important, then they need to figure out how to make them make them work better. It just seems a little bit like a, I used to work for a guy that called the dog's breakfast, which is probably not the most great, not the greatest visual, but just sort of this, this, you know, smorgasbord of things, not all pointed to a really compelling strategy. I think um, Steve sort of hits the nail on the head when he said, you know, they sort of stick the backstage in some stores, because it, it, it feels very much like that Macy says, okay, we have these stores, we have this space, and there's a question, and the question is, how do we fill them? And it's like, what do we stick in them? And honestly, the answer comes back very often. It seems like anything that they can think of to try (laughs) and make this space worse. But of course, that's looking at it from the wrong end. What they should be saying is, okay, well, how much space do we really realistically need in these malls? And if necessary, let's downscale the, the stores in those malls, because maybe in some locations we don't need all this space. Um, you can't just say, well, we're wedded to the, the format and the footprint that we've got. We must find things to fill it, because this is one of the reasons why they've had this continually revolving door of things they're putting in. I mean, they once had this thing called, Steve will probably remember this, called Zoom Systems. <laughs> that were supposed to be selling electronics like iPads in the stores. And then, you know, sort of, 
10 years later, then they were thinking about putting Best Buy in some stores, if you remember that one. That didn't really work out. And then they were thinking about putting men's warehouse into stores and doing yep. rent. You know, it's always about how do we make these stores work and not about what space do we actually need? And I think that's looking at it very much from the wrong, wrong way around. Yeah. Well, and now they're doing the Toys R Us pop-ups in all of their locations, I think, or at least they're, I think they're working toward launching them in all of their locations, but. You know, I was actually able to visit one here uh, in Tulsa, where I live. Um, but did either of you go out and experience the new Toys R Us yet? Well, I know Neil has because he's. I think he had some pictures on uh, Twitter of of your visit. Is that right? I, I have. Yeah, I have. I've actually visited six different stores oh. with Toys R Us. So I've had a good. Cr- I do try to go in lots of different places. It's Neil is a little bit of a glutton for punishment. I, I think <laughs> it is. It's like uh, you know, self-flagellation. Really. It's terrible. But um, I do try to visit quite a, a wide cross-section. And I would say on the plus side, the one thing that I do get them a tick in the box for is they've finally done something with new fixtures. They've got new fixtures, new signage. They've tried to elevate the proposition. So I think there's a tick in the box for that. They've actually put some investment behind this. Honestly, though, the execution is variable. Some of the stores are actually pretty nice. The one in Arrowhead Mall, which is a family-based mall I mentioned earlier, that's a really big department and it looks quite strong and I was quite impressed. Mm -hmm. Other ones, though, they're just really missing the mark. They're messy. They're not merchandised that well. But the thing it comes back to for me is, regardless of how well they're executed in store, it's it's good and I'm sure they'll generate some incremental revenue. I'm sure sure they'll get some sales from them. But are they as good as Target or Walmart in yeah. toys? No. no, they're not. Mm-hmm. They're not good, as good on price. And on assortment, they're way down the batting order. And for me, it's just, it's again, it's just a kind of also-ran strategy. It's nothing that you say, wow, Macy's really owns that. They really own toys now. It's just like, yeah, it's all right, but everyone else is doing this already. Yeah, you know, I saw the one um, that they did in Herald Square uh, not not in person, but I saw videos, and that I gotta say that was that was pretty cool. You saw the kids playing, um, very hands on, tactile kind of stations throughout it. Jeffrey the giraffe installations, and all the kids were running around. And so um, while watching that video, uh, I definitely felt the the spirit of of nostalgia. But yeah, I you know I went to the one here in Tulsa, and um, you know. Really, the the only memories it kind of conjured up was the experience I had with with Story uh, a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the one the one here was like maybe like a thousand square feet, and it was several shelves with toys and products, and it was just kind of sandwiched between two other dimly lit departments. Um, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I have a four year old, and you know, to your point, Neil, like he gets a, a more thrilling experience when we go to Target to uh, shop for Legos. There's more to choose from. He gets a cake pop from Starbucks at the end of it. So, you know, here in Tulsa, uh, the Toys R Us, not so good. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of the same thing that I felt when I visited uh, Story a few years ago, which I went to the one at the mall Mall Millennia? Yeah, the Millennia Mall um, in Orlando. And I was really excited to go. I think this was in 2019. And um, kind of the same thing, you know, it was just a 
some curated gift kind of items. And I had talked to the store lead and I was like, all right, so give me like the lowdown. Like, what's all this about? And he didn't really have much to say. He was just kind of like, yeah, like everything's color coordinated. <laughs> right. I was like, okay, obviously. <laughs> yeah, what else? And he was just like, you know, that's kind of it. You know, uh, we're doing this thing with Crayola and the kids can come and they can like color this paper. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Um, so what's the next one? Like, tell me about the next one. And he was like, you know, we actually don't know what the next, like what next months will be until we are <laughs> unpacking the box and setting it up. And so it's like, you know, even if you're, you're, your employees, uh, you know, they, they don't even know what's, what's going on. So with the Toys R Us, it's, it's, I don't know. I think they really tried it, but how will they kind of execute it at scale? So, you know, to me, to me, it tells me that Macy's with Story and, and here with Toys R Us, at least in Tulsa. They've come up with a concept, but I think uh, in some some instances they really didn't do much to uh, to enable their teams to really scale it effectively. Yeah, I do. I do think there's kind of two different issues, though. I think with story, and again, I, I do applaud Macy's generally for trying a lot of things uh, because I definitely think many of the department stores and other retailers don't experiment enough. Uh, so I, I don't want to give them a hard time for that, but you know, Story was one store in Manhattan, never went to a second location after a number of years at a time when Warby Parker and other new concepts were expanding. So my sense, as cool as Story was, uh, it was not a scalable concept to begin with. So it was very curious to me that they decided to buy that and, and roll it out. Like it did not seem to fit into any cohesive merchandising strategy, and then they executed it poorly. But I think the other thing, which is a little bit of the Toys R Us problem too, is when you roll out these bright, shiny, new thousand square foot or whatever departments, and they're next to stores that look crappy. You know, Neil mentioned the new fixturing, which I agree, I've seen a Toys R Us here in Dallas that looks pretty good, but it's next to a lot of stuff that doesn't look very good at all. And I think that just calls attention to the mediocrity uh, that is that is often pretty typical at Macy's. So it's very hard. I mean, I almost think that they would be better to coalesce, you know, 10 new ideas. Maybe they put a Warby Parker or an Untucket or something, some new products in one store and really figure out what the new concept for their more hub stores or their more uh, satellite stores should look like and then do that all at once as opposed to changing 1% or 2% of the store when the rest of the store is pretty much the same. I, I'm just not sure. I mean, aside from the executional issues, I'm just not sure for me, how are we going to get a lot more people to come to Macy's and buy more stuff, you know, which is the basic equation, you know, more traffic, more conversion, higher ticket. Like that's how you grow your market share. I, I don't understand how this all adds up to anything. It seems still like a bunch of random ideas. Uh, that often are just based upon, well, they got all this space. What do we put in it? Yeah. Yeah, I think, and I think that's the key to it, Steve. It is that randomness because what they need to do is they need to look at all of their core departments, which obviously are mo mostly apparel. Macy's is very dominated by apparel. But they also have beauty and they have obviously home as well. And what they should be saying to themselves is, okay, well, in beauty, we want to be as good as, if not 
better than Sephora. In home, we want to be as good as, if not better than, Crate and Barrel and Williams Sonoma. In apparel, we want to be as good as, if not better than, for the youth segment, Zara, and so on and so forth. What you can't do is just have lots of mediocre departments lumped together, because to Steve's point at the start of this, people will not come just because you have lots of mediocre stuff. That isn't good enough anymore. What you have to have is really standout stuff across many different departments, so people will say, wow, I'll visit you know, this, that, and the other um, within Macy's, and then of course I'll cross shop and do things across different departments. But Macy's doesn't seem to have a winning strategy in any single department, and it's really dragging the whole thing down. And I think that's, that goes to the heart of many of these problems, because it's bad enough for any store to have issues of declining sales, but when you're operating very expensive, very, very extensive real estate like a department store, I mean, these are huge units. They, they have a lot of cost in terms of staffing and overhead. When you're operating those, you cannot afford year after year for them to be seeing declines in sales density and sales per square foot, which is what Macy's has seen over the long run. Um, and they, they need to get a grip on that and address that. Yeah. And, you know, I think that brings it back around to, you know, who is the Macy's brand loyalist anyway? Who are who are the Macy's loyalists? I could not tell you. Um, you know, maybe they're the card holders, perhaps, who are, you know, trying to get a discount um, would be my guess. But, you know, let's let's kind of have you guys and you, you both have also given some some actionable steps here that I think are some really valid um, recommendations of how they can improve. But let's kind of break it down a little bit more. So, Steve, we'll have you start first. If you could prescribe Macy's a remedy for improvement, what would it be? Well, I think there are, there are remedies at, at different levels. Uh, one of the things that Neil does well, uh, though, like I say, he's a little bit of glutton for punishment, is he points out a lot of the executional issues that they have at Macy's. And yeah. I, assume, I, I assume they know better, but it's a labor issue. But I think certainly they, there's a lot of opportunities for them to convert the traffic they already have better. And that's probably mostly about putting a focus on it and maybe testing um, a model with more store labor. Uh, but strategically, I think, you know, we've talked about a bunch of these things. They have to go on a category by category basis and really figure out how to better differentiate uh, their their departments and whether that means uh, dialing up their private brands, bringing in new brands, adding services or experiences. Like, I don't know exactly what the answers are, but they have to be quite profound because right now they're just sort of stuck in the boring middle. The other thing I would really seriously think about is taking, and I'm making up a number, it's a bit arbitrary, taking 10 stores that represent, you know, kind of to Neil's point, maybe the more upscale malls, maybe the more family malls, and have uh, a challenge to their teams to say, I want you to re-merchandise this store with 30 or 40% less space. Because I think it is this vastness of space that is causing them to be drastically over-assorted and unfocused. And I also think just from an experiential standpoint, every time I go into Macy's and I've been into three Macy's in the last week, the sheer size and vastness and clutter, I, I think really makes for a poor shopping experience. And there really are no successful retailers today that operate in such large format stores that are successful. The only argument you can make is say for a Walmart or a Target, mm -hmm. but that's a very different, you know, that's an everyday retailer on a single level. 
But, you know, the loss of market share to Neil's earlier point in these multi-level, vastly, a little bit of everything sort of stores, you know, it's pretty clear that doesn't work. So I think if you want to operate, in addition to testing other formats, you want to operate within your existing real estate, close your third floor, bring in the walls. And, and because of that, that view that we just have to fill up the space or that this space is free actually makes them, I think, incredibly um, less relevant over time, has made them less relevant over time. Well, I think there's a number of things that Macy should do. I think the first thing that they should do is they should understand the leakage that occurs at the moment, because one of the things that's for certain is the vast majority of customers who shop at Macy's do not spend all of their money at Macy's, and actually they're spending less and less of their money at Macy's over time. So the question is, well, where is that money leaking to, you know, and why? So people that come in for apparel and used to buy beauty, but now buy their beauty at Ulta. Why do they do that? And how can Macy's make improvements to recapture some of that uh, shopper spend? And a lot of those things, as Steve notes, are executional. I think that a lot of customers at Macy's don't bother to shop there for certain things because it's quite an effort that you need to put in in order to get the products you want. You have to walk around, you have to rummage through lots of messy assortments and displays. So I think just looking at that as a first step would be a good um, good initial thing. I think longer term, they need to really take a step back and see how they want to reinvent the business in a cohesive way. And this doesn't mean doing these small piecemeal things like a bit of Toys R Us, a bit of story. That has to stop and they need to have a fundamental review. And they need to start by saying, well, who are the customers we want to serve? And I say customers because I think Braces is a broad offer. It will serve a range of different customers and it needs to understand who those are and segment accordingly. And when it has its customer target, it then needs to make sure it has brands and offers and the right mix of products for those customers. And most importantly, and I agree with Steve, it doesn't probably need as much space as it's got, but it's still going to be a big store. It needs to segment its store because one of the problems is when you go into Macy's, other than the departments where you have women's wear, men's wear and beauty and home, etc., it's just a big sea of blandness. You don't walk in and say, as a you know, as a thirty-year-old, you don't walk in and say, "Oh, that's the department that's made for people like me." Whereas you know, an, an older person would walk in and say, "Oh, you know, that's the department that's made for people like me." Or someone who wants to buy sports and athleisure says, "Hey, you know, that's the department that I need to go to." It all just merges into each other, and that's actually an anathema to a department store concept because. The whole de point of a department store is you have departments yeah, and there's seems... different things. And it isn't just departments <laughs> like women's wear. It's different sorts of women's wear. Uh, and they need to do a lot more of, of that um, so that it, the shopping experience suddenly becomes much more focused and targeted. And it's much easier to display things. And of course, that Steve says, all of that is nothing without having proper execution. And that means getting back up to really good standards because the one thing where Macy's really falls down is on shopkeeping standards. They are, I would say, one of the absolute worst retailers in the market um, for poor standards in stores. They are abysmal. And you can have the best strategies in the world, the best brands, the best products, best segmentation. But if the shop floor doesn't look shoppable and neat and is presentable to customers in a way that entices them to buy, all of your strategies are for nothing. So they, there's a lot of things they need to do there. But I think at the heart of it, it's really understanding who the customers are and 
designing the offer from the ground up for that customer. Yeah. So what I took from that, um, from both uh, Steve and Neil, is more is less and less is more. And uh, Macy's should consider closing their third floors, really figuring out their brand, you know, taking a step back and doing a, a thorough review, segmenting stores, and uh, really figuring out who their customers are. And, and I would add uh, onto that, you know, recognizing that, you know, Gen Z and Gen Alpha, gosh, um, you know, they're, they're <laughs> the incoming consumer groups. And so, you know, I've said this before, but if, you know, how are you going to entice them and keep them interested if you can't even keep their parents or their grandparents <laughs> yeah. interested in coming in your stores? Yeah. Well, that is all the time we have today. I want to thank Steve Dennis and Neil Saunders for being our very first retail therapists on the show. And until next time, this has been Retail Therapy, a Rethink Retail exclusive podcast. And if you or someone you know is interested in joining the next show as a retail therapist, be sure to give me a shout on LinkedIn or you can send me a note directly to Gabriella, that is with two L's, at rethink.industries. Steve Neal, thanks again for hopping on with us today. Thank you. Thank you.